Harvard Divinity School. The Runaway Goddess, Sacred Waters in an Era of Climate Apocalypse, October 13th, 2022. Welcome. It's so good to see you in person. It's so great to be able to gather and have this wonderful food. Thank you to our, our team um, for serving us lunch. And thank you so much uh, for gathering for this Women's Studies and Religion research lecture. Just before I introduce today's lecture, I just want to mention that two weeks from today, at the same time in a different place, um, I believe in the Braun Room, we will hear from Rahina Muazu, who will be speaking on Aura, Women, and gender, the Gendering of Space under Islamic Law. So we will... Um, skip over some continents uh, two weeks from today. But today, we're so pleased to hear from Tulasi Srinivas. Um, she is a professor of anthropology, religion, and transnational studies at the Marlboro Institute for Interdisciplinary Studies at Emerson College. And she's also a fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society and the Indian Sociological Society. And uh, someday we're going to have sisters at those societies, um, and she'll be the first, the first one. Her research interests include anthropology of religion, anthropology of globalization, food and gender, secularism and violence, transnational processes, economy, money, and indigeneity. Um, as well as ritual studies, anthropology of wonder, which I think you invented that term. Uh, yes, um, uh, which is now something we all want to explore. Uh, she also looks at ecology, life and flourishing, food and drink, materiality, visual culture, and post-colonialism, which makes me kind of exhausted to think how you can address all those topics. But she has done so in many, many articles and her six published books including most recently The Cow in the Elevator, An Anthropology of Wonder, and Winged Faith, Rethinking Globalization and Religious Pluralism. Um, she's held a number of prestigious fellowships on multiple continents, and we are honored that she has made the Women's Studies and Religion program her research home for this year, uh, and has chosen HDS as the place to pursue her next project, about which she will speak to us today, The Runaway Goddess, Water, Gender, and Caste in a Climate Apocalypse. Julissi. What a generous introduction. Thank you, Anne. Um, I feel like a fraud. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> But Danyavadi Garu Banditike in my home language of Canada. Thank you all for coming. I am profoundly grateful to uh, Anne Brody um, for her generous introduction, but her generous welcoming sort of spirit at HDS and at the Women's Studies Religion Program. Um, for Tracy Wall, without whom the program wouldn't run. Uh, her efficiency, her, her uh, sort of making everything easy 
even though they seem insurmountable obstacles to a scholar like myself. And I want to thank um, uh, Diana Eck, who has been formative in my understanding of India, Frank Clooney, and now Martha Selby, who has joined Harvard, for their generous friendship and support over many years. So what I'm going to talk to you about today is a book manuscript that's just beginning to come together in my head. So forgive me um, if you've heard some of this before, or if you find it sort of, it's sort of formless at this point, sort of coalescing. But that's what I look forward to in the introduction for you very smart people to ask me smart questions that force me to think. Um, I'm going to speak about a small corner of India, my hometown of Bangalore in South India. It's no great Tirtha, no sacred water fort, no pilgrimage place. It's not an important site for Hinduism. It's not a religious site of any kind, in fact. It's merely a place that I love and where I belong. Bangalore is known to the wider world as the place for biotech and information technology, knowledgeware of all kinds. It is the place where, one, where calls from the United States get rooted when you need a mortgage application or transcription of health notes. Um, and I feel that trying to describe and understand the climate crisis as it is felt in Bangalore is amongst the most important life work that I can do. I'm convinced that to help understand the depth and complexity of the climate crisis, its moral tones, we have to tell stories of our little corners of the world that we love to make sense of the deep violence of this crisis. For facts abound. They've been dogging us for decades, but we cannot make sense of them. Perhaps the stories of our worlds that we have lost or run the risk of losing is the powerful motivator we may need to take action and come to terms with it. Part of the problem in dealing with climate change is not just the fractious politics, uh, but also a sort of problem of the imagination, as I understand it, uh, in the language we have for describing the perils of climate change. Anthropologists use the term the Anthropocene to describe the current era, where human intervention, industrial life, neoliberal economics have bequeathed to us an unsustainable system. While the Anthropocene is a descriptive term and usefully critical of the Enlightenment project of progress, it distills the feeling of precarity and dread of our current era. It uses technocratic, post-humanist discourse and analysis and language. Paradoxically for me, and problematically, using the term the Anthropocene and the language that attends to it leads us merely to a climate of grief and apprehension, but never beyond. So we lack the language and the ability to apprehend the scale and the depth of the problem. The apocalyptic imagery of climate change makes us look away in fear. We live comfortably numb, as Nietzsche would say, in a nest above the abyss. But if we are to survive beyond this apocalypse and fly beyond the abyss, to think and work our way through it, we need to think beyond this technocratic language, to rouse our passions to get at the feelings of joy, of abundance, of care, and of hope. And if we accept this framework that I'm offering, then I suggest what is necessary is a pivot away from knowledge and to wisdom. 
from immediate technocratic solutions to in indigenous wisdom rooted in care as long-term repair. I'm going to come back to this idea of repair. I'm using what Elizabeth Papanelli has called the anthropology of the otherwise, which I render as both the wisdom of the other and the wisdom of that which is considered apart, separate, marginal. So how might the otherwise be rendered manifest ethnographically? How might it serve this project? Here we need to remind ourselves that ethnographic descriptions, like all cultural translations, necessarily involve an element of transformation, or you might say disfiguration. As an anthropologist of religion, I can see both. That far from mapping one discrete social order onto another, it's less deliberative and reflexive and leads to what Anna Singh has called productive misunderstandings, to perform comparisons, not just between contexts and realms, but also within them. So I begin not with dubious assumptions that we take people and things more seriously, as anthropologists say, than others are able or willing to do, but the ambition, and ideally the ability, to see otherwise, and to elicit from it shapes and forces that offer access to what might be called the dark side of things, and to lead us through this dark side to an ontology of repair, which might constitute in its practice what Michael Jackson has beautifully called an existential ethics. Religion obviously is deeply implicated in my quest. Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm argue that an environmental crisis of existential complexity and scope is the result of certain economic, political, and social factors. And Pope Francis would agree. In fact, his La Laudato Si says as much. Tucker and Grimm say religions need to be re-examined in light of the current environmental crisis. This is because religions help to shape our attitude towards nature in both conscious and unconscious ways. Religion provides basic interpretive stories of who we are, what nature is, where we have come from, and where we are going. So what people do about their ecology depends upon what they think about themselves in relation to things around them. And it is with the radical hope of a pivot towards repair and love that I tell the story of water in Bangalore through the story of its lakes. These lakes were a part of my childhood memory of the city. It's a sacred geography to me. These lakes have bathed in their reedy waters. I've caught the glimmering sun on their waves. I've netted tadpoles in them as a child. I've unwittingly swum in them as I hauled my friends out when they fell in. I've gathered lotus blooms from them. I've lost my heart at their banks. I participated as an, as an adult in lakeside rituals, but now I weep for them. For well, this is the story of one burning lake and a runaway goddess. On February 17th, 2017, the water burned. The two-mile-long Belandur Lake in the north of Bangalore caught fire. Smoke billowed from the water's surface, carrying the putrid smell of raw sewage and acrid chemicals across the village at its shore, called Iblur. A dense white foam had covered the lake for several years, thick as shaving cream, soft as pillows, and the surface of the gray surface of the water could only be glimpsed when the froth broke up. The pre-monsoon winds that swirled through the city blew a soapy froth into the streets, 
wet-covered vehicles and pedestrians alike in a stinging cloud of suds. These white suds were lit from within with orange and blue flames, and occasionally a sharp cracking sound, like the rasp of a lighter, could be heard. The temple to Kartiriaman, a wilderness goddess of the lake, had been engulfed in the toxic suds. The outer walls of the shrine had been blackened. In a compelling yet tragically unaired interview shot that day, a woman named Gauri, a middle-aged Hindu Tigala woman, Tigala is the caste, it's a horticulturist caste, a resident of the Iblur village at the banks of Bilandur, stood at the still, still smoldering lake shore. She said she had grown up near the lake in a traditional horticultural family. She spoke powerfully of her memories of the once verdant landscape of the clear waters of the lake teeming with fish and birds, green trees weighed down with fruit and flowers in the orchards nearby. She recalled the carefree childhood in the village as a schoolgirl. She spoke of the underground stream that bubbled beneath the temple. She evoked the Hindu poetic myths of this region, in Sanskrit term the Sthala Purana, the myths of sacred place, where the water of the lake was sacred and life-giving. But then, just gesturing despairingly to the fiery lake behind her, the shore littered with plastic bags, feces, and dead fish, and other refuse, she said. This lake is burning. The Stala Purana has become a terrifying tale. Bhayanaka Purana. She coughed and cried, this water burns, my lungs are on fire. The wilderness goddess Kartiriyaman is now absent, she used the English term, raped by these developers. Maybe she has run away from this hell. The fiery toxic sludge in Bilandur Lake that Gauri laments indexes a growing urban region that reeks of corruption and contamination, where sewerage and industrial pollutants are allowed to be dumped into the water every day in an erratic yet constant attempt to desiccate the city's lakes. The loss of water is a potent question for a religion like Hinduism, where water is thought to be an originary, pure, divine fluid, a gift and blessing of the grace of the gods. For Hindus and many others, water is sacred, the origin of all reality. It's primordial, it's the stuff of the universe, it's celestial. It offers a sense of lucent possibility of birth, rebirth. As David Moss, the noticed British eco-anthropologist of South Asia says, the relationship between water and a society is as complex a historical, sociological, and regional situation as any that can be imagined. Water is a sacred substance, refreshment, life, death, power, and change. <coughs> I'm mindful that different aqueous phenomena, such as rivers, or lakes, or rain, or irrigation systems, glaciers, all require their own anthropologies and their own accounts. But Stefan Heimrich at MIT has given us this beautiful um, sort of way of thinking about seawater. And he says that water was always thought of as atheoretical. It's just natural. But it is very good to think with and drink. Indeed, as William James so profoundly noted in his likening of our consciousness to a stream, water and its flow has long held our imagination as good to think with, as a metaphor, as a way to study, as an object of study. In The Runaway Goddess, my book in progress during this year, I begin with La uh, Gauri's lament to, signif to signify and signal to 
this catastrophic attenuation of local water resources in my hometown of Bangalore. To ask the question, if water is life, what is a life without water? And the attendant questions, how is water and access to it gendered? How can we think of a traditional understanding of water in new and informative ways, given our, the apocalyptic times we live in? What can we make of the Hindu sacred imagination in an era of climate apocalypse? When my ethnography began in 2012 and continued through the pandemic, um, I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't go to India. I turned to WhatsApp and Zoom. The contagion has been longer in Bangalore. From 2012 to 2016, nearly everyone I knew in Bangalore had what they called a viral, extending from chikungunya through dengue, which hit the, hit, hit the city hard to bronchitis and culminating in COVID. This age of contagion has reawoken contagion goddesses and wilderness goddesses like Kartariyaman, rendering them useful. More pujas are done at these temples than for decades. But doing ethnography during these pandemics meant that my interlocutors were constantly ill and constantly contagious. WhatsApp proved to be my savior. It's free, and because of the cheap availability of cell phones in India, everyone I talked to, regardless of how poor caste marginalized they were, had a cell phone. And so I could interview them, I could write along with them, I could see things that they were seeing if I just asked them to turn their phone, it proved to be a technological companion. So this ethnography is in part owed to the inventors of WhatsApp. Um, Kim Fortune makes the case that ethnography should play a cru crucial role in building something new not merely describing what is. Working in the gaps between established fields and categories, she says, ethnography can help, quote, bring forth a future anterior that is not calculable from what we know now, a future that surprises something beyond codified expert formulas. In keeping with Fortune's vision, my project attempts to think beyond this formulaic into the future of ecology. But before I dive in, I need to undo two threads that are wound together in my work. The site of Bangalore is a place of water, thirst, and how Hinduism is implicated in eco-collapse. So I'm calling this the thirsty city of a thousand lakes. My hometown of Bangalore was known as Kalyanagara, the lake city. It had a thousand small lakes. It was a swampy lowland, a riparian wonderland of wetlands, rivers, streams, and rills that overflowed with life. The Belandur Lake was the largest water body in the city to the north, and all drinking water was dependent upon it. This lake is discussed in archival documents of the colonial era as a stage for li liquid ritual events at the Wilderness Goddess Shrine on the south bank of the lake. More than just metaphors to Bangaloreans, these sacred lakes, particularly to Hindus, were feminine, sentient guardians of the city. Um, Bangalore's lakes were given as grants to temples and monasteries by enlightened medieval rulers, both Hindu and Muslim, in perpetuity, seen as a gift for 21 generations, as long as the sun and moon endure, is what the edicts tell us. But in modern India, the lakes became public property government property, and slowly became used not for drinking, but for leisure with concrete pathways along their shoreline. In the 1970s, there were 
285 lakes in the city. But the violent alchemy that polluted our sacred waters took less than a few decades of economic liberalization to kickstart. And you can see in the slide the literal shrinking of Belandur Lake between 2000 and 2013. By the early 2000s, Bangalore was home to the successful information technology boom known as the Silicon Valley of Asia. Its population doubled between 2000 and 2020 from 6 to 12 million. And rapid urbanization and expansion between 1973 and 2016 caused a decline of 88% of the city's vegetation. Water bodies declined from 285 in 1980 to less than 80 today. Lakes are infilled, and the land beneath them, precious, expensive, has been gifted to institutions such as hospitals and universities to build their campuses. One expected outcome is, of course, the attenuation of water resources. And so the city is per perennially thirsty. You can see how this shift occurs between 2000 and 2020, how the lakes disappear. So every day, Bangalore has to pump 1.4 billion liters of water, which fail to meet the city's needs. The problem is most of the city's drinking water comes from a deep gorge of the river Kaveri, more than 60 miles away, and it has to be pumped uphill and into the city. In 2016, the city pumped 1,400 million liters of water at a cumulative cost of, believe this or not, 800 million US dollars. And then 40% of this water is lost to theft and leakage. Gauri stood in front of the Kartarium and temple, wreathed in smoke from the burning lake. She coughed and then she spat blood. We live in this world of filth, she said. The lake has been trashed. Look at it. What hell, Naraka, is this? How can we live here now? The lake is a ruin, as Gauri suggests. But ruins are interesting in that they reveal a temporality of decay as Tim Edensor says, derelict sites and a fluid state of material becoming. They can reveal the stages and temporalities of decay. This is a toxic community, financially and ecologically and emotionally. When I visit the Kartarian temple with Gauri, fishermen arrive, drawing up their coracle boats from the lake, complaining about the dead fish. After they left with their families, carrying away the bananas and flowers they had brought from the deity after they had been blessed, the priest settled down for a chat. He said he took over the Kartarium and temple several decades ago. The Belandur tank was an open recharge lake. He added that Kartariaman was the goddess of the edge. He said, Enunali, on the edge, between land and water. As the goddess of the wilderness, she could stay in the Karu, the forest, or the Kere, the tank, but not anywhere else. Today, he seemed to suggest, she sits on another edge, the edge of total eco-collapse. I've personally observed the destruction of the water bodies of Bangalore from 2000 to 2018, having lived and grown up in the city, as water scarcity rolled through its neighborhoods. All the women would line up, waiting long hours to catch water. A global water crisis is looming. Places like Bangalore will be ground zero for it. It is likely to adversely impact 600 million people, 
most of them women. A second outcome that is rarer, but nonetheless catastrophic, is urban flooding. This is Cartarium, the wilderness goddess. This is her temple, and you can see the development all around her. The second outcome, which is rarer, but nonetheless catastrophic for Bangalore, is urban flooding. This past monsoon season that ended a month ago, many Bangaloreans, middle-class Bangaloreans, had to buy private boats to navigate the flooded streets. The question of climate justice with regards to thirst and floods is obvious and looming. Changes in water lines indicate an unraveling of worlds. As life on the planet is unraveling in ways seen and unseen, we are, our unconscious behavior is obviously inflicting violence upon other populations, human and wild. And this great derangement to quote Amitabh Ghosh, where the unthinkable often happens, is understood in Hinduism as Kali Yuga, the last great epoch, in which the run-up to the end times begins to spiral. The world will end in pralaya, the cosmic flood. As you all know, water is an originary fluid in Hinduism both in the mythic mind, Zai, and in the theological texts. Vishnu, the imminent and all-pervasive, floats on a watery sea known as the ocean of milk. And the center of the multiverse, on his um, snake bed known as Anantashesha, Ananta meaning beyond infinity, symbolizes eternity. So he's both imminent, all-pervasive, and beyond eternal. Water, known as up in Sanskrit, is said to be primordial. It is the, it is um, articulated in the Rig Veda, in the Saila Aprakatam, as part of the world where there was originally water without light. The gods of the waters are many. Appas Indra, Varuna, the god of the sky, and upholder of Rita, or natural law and Parjanya, the god of the rain cloud. Now, the Rig Veda says, um, in the world there was darkness surrounded, wrapped around by darkness. I'm translating as I go. Um, there was darkness wrapped around by darkness, and all around was dark water. But assimilated into the everyday, water's alterity is made more potent, but more manageable. It's used to bathe the idol of the gods as Abhishekam, to drink as sacred water, Tirtham, and to purify the world at large, Prokshanam. In Hindu myth, too, the idea of life is given by water as central. And here, water is female and fecund. In cosmology, is a revered fertile femininity of Hindu riverine goddesses, such as Ganga. The goddesses together known as Sarita, that that gives life. Um, Ganga, Yamuna, or in the case of Bangalore, the Kaveri. Water is the sacred fluid from which the eternal and all-pervasive emerges. For Hindus, as da David Haberman so eloquently points out in his work on the Yamuna, and Jack Hawley has brilliantly articulated in his, um, in his work on Tirtha and his work on um, um, Varnasi, water on earth is female, fertile, and pure, and it's central to the Hindu conscription and understanding of sacred geographies. 
Rivers mark the boundaries of South Asian civilizations. They mark the boundaries of our imaginations. And yet, the rivers in India um, are marked by sewerage outfalls, and the Ganga by dead bodies, human and other. And Haberman suggests that Hindus then see the physical pollution of the river as accumulation of the many sins that human beings carry with them. The fishermen, as they point to the trashed lake in Bilandur, said with decisiveness, this is the evidence of Kali Yuga, the era of sin and fraud. Soon, they say, Lord Shiva will start to dance the Tandava, the dance of the end. He will beat his drum, they say, and start to dance. How soon will he dance, I ask? They laugh and they say, not soon enough. If with climate change, water scarcity and catastrophic floods become reality in India, as it is predicted, it would seem that the Hindu sacred imagination offers an apocalyptic imagery and vocabulary to understand it, as to what is revealed when the worlds begin to unravel, as Terry Tempest Williams has suggested. They enable us to trace the entangled nature of undoing and yet becoming. And in thinking of unraveling, it's important to ask, what are we disentangling? And for me, the unknotting and unraveling becomes a method to unknit our assumptions, our Eurocentric assumptions. For that, I return to Bilandur. Gauri's son Mahesh, and this is the Kaved. Gauri's son Mahesh works for a water pirate known by the name Iqbal. Early one morning, a huge chocolate brown water tanker with yellow lettering, Sri Ganesh water supply, stood in open field. And Mahesh, with his floppy hair and irritated expression, stood, at, stood atop the tanker, pushing a large hose into the barrel. The hose was attached to a bore well, a cylindrical shaft that punched deep into the earth, into the heart of the aquifer on which the city of Bangalore sits. A pump whined, and Mahesh sat back and lit a bidi, a chirut, holding it between his thumb and forefinger, and lazily blowing smoke into the air. After four BDs worth of time, Mahesh got back into the cab of the tanker, gestured to me to get in, and began his drive through a narrow network of newly tarred roads in the new suburb of Whitefield, actually an extension to the suburb. He honked his horn frequently to pass through the congested streets, thick with fancy cars, BMWs, um, iron carts, stray dogs, and Uber drivers. Turning into the parking lot of a Fortune 500 software company that will remain unnamed, Mahesh opened the spigot valve of the tanker, allowing gallons of ebloured water to gush into a concrete cistern deep underground. Like the city of Los Angeles, Bangalore now lies in an arid plain. In 2018, an approximate 8,000 souls enter the city every single day. These newly minted Bangaloreans live in housing estates, apartments, uh, sprawling into the rural hinterland, ingesting villages, gobbling rural land, extending the city's footprint by 20 miles every single year. The city is metastasized into a dystopian metro metropolis, and it is it gobbles up groundwater every day. Burwell operators say they need to dig 1,000 feet. Um, in, in 2000, when I interviewed them, they said they dug 200 feet and got pure waters. Now they dig 1,000 feet 
almost as low as the river Kaveri. As the water table in the aquifer sinks, the lakes dry up. Gravity drains the lakes to fill the aquifer. More than half of Bangalore's water supply now comes from these tankers. With no supervision, a privatization scheme, an extraction privatization scheme that goes unchallenged by the city government. The story of Bangalore's galloping water mismanagement resembles Jack Hawley's articulation, uh, recent articulation of the AR of the water of Rindavan, where we can see a sacred river degrading. It raises the question of whether we can nurture nature, or whether apprehension and dread that the multiplying problems of climate change has outstripped our capacities to describe. How can we meet these challenges if we can't describe them? A thought unbidden comes to me as I ride with Mahesh. Perhaps drowning pralaya is not the end. Perhaps thirst is. But just as I lost hope, the question of repair pivoted into view. At dusk at the edge of another lake in a paddy flat in Balakere village, I met Kimpama, an elderly woman of the Bovi caste, who dug wells and lakes for a living. Traditionally a woman's task, though in the past century increasingly controlled by men. She sang a song to the water. She said, to every place, to every place, to satisfy our thirst. To survive, we need water, O Mother Ganga. You are the mother to this world. You are the mother to this world, O Ganga. You are our mother. She told me how her mother could not drink at the wells and lakes she built for fear of polluting them. And today, how many of our caste members are indigent, their work dismissed. Whilst repairing the stone walls of the canals that led to the lake, Seeing songs begging the water to come and to stay, she said, these waters are living beings I birthed. No one cares for them anymore, not even the crook who owns this land. I come here to fix these channels. I care, Nordkortini, I look after them. All the medieval tanks around Bangalore, the lakes that I thought, were natural, were dug or dammed by a caste of Dalit well workers known as the Vardars or the Bhovis. Though previously they lived close to their places of work, in the early 1950s the Bhovis were given a colony on the outskirts of Bangalore known as Bhovi Palya, where many of the community now live. Joel Lee's work on Dalit communities, particularly sanitation communities and water communities, and how they were. Um, uh, ghettoized by colonial government followed through by modern India is really central to understanding how this movement from the center of the city out to the outskirts this changes the relationship of middle-class Bangaloreans to water resources. Self-titled Dalits, Bovi, um, the word Dalit means the crushed, they were previously known unfortunately as untouchables, <coughs> literally those who cannot be touched as their bodies carry the dangerous, contagious pollution of their casted status. Dalit politics of dignity demands for indigenous recognition have rocked in India's Savarna upper castes and led to a divided society and become very politicized, as they should be, but in the wrong way. Dalit suicides and much hand-wringing and defensiveness among Savarna groups follow uh, uh, this group. As an upper caste woman myself, 
I do not wish to engage in further violences by ventriloquizing Dalit voices. So Kempama and her son Ramakrishna speak for themselves in my work. Well diggers all over India are often from Dalit caste, Kempama tells me. And historically, and in some cases even today, Ra Ramakrishna says, are prevented, he uses the English word, from drinking water from the wells they dig due to caste-based concerns around their bodies. Bhovi marodu bhavi, he says. The bhovis make the lakes, Kempama says poetically. She explains there are two kinds of bhovis. Mannu vaddars, those that build mud check dams like herself, and kallu vaddars, those in Tamil, those who are stonemasons who build lined wells, like this one. When the bore wells came into Bangalore, such as those at which Mahesh filled his tanker in the early 2000s, the bovis become beggars, she said. In an area where there were 5,000 workers, an area that I've studied in the Anthropology of Wonder called Maleshram, every house had a well, and the bovis would walk to certain houses, um, patronize them, to clean the wells every year. And this is how they made their livelihood, clean the water with lye, clean the sort of edges, repair the stone walls. But once um, the bore well operators were privatized, where machinery came in, these wells became disused. And the bovies became bigger, she says. These 5,000 houses in Maleshram, now they use Kaveri water. They have piped water, or they use a bore well. Earlier, there used to be huge wells in these houses. We would go and draw water from them and clean them. Now, who wants to make that effort? They just connect the bore well pump line, and then they use the water. And look, look around you. Everywhere, what do you see? Concrete, tar, drains. There's no place to collect this water. Where will it go? It has to go back into the soil for it to come back up, she says. She actually said it much more poetically than English can translate it. She says the earth swallows the water, it comes back up, you know, a sort of almost a gifting of the water from the earth. Ramakrishna Kempama's son is now the spokesperson for the Bovi community. He's taken on a sort of semi-political role. And he described the Vardars as people. He says, we are people who find water for everyone, but we live in chronic thirst. He tells me the story of his grandfather and grandmother who dug, cleaned well, and cleaned wells for their living. Dirty, hard, and dangerous work in the red clay of the Deccan. They were paid the princely sum of one lakh rupees a few years prior to clean out the disused, disused wells of a monastery in Mysuru. They spent a week cleaning the well, sleeping in the stone courtyard at night. When they finished, they laced the water with acidic lye that burnt their hands to make it potable. And the head abbot paid them. But once he paid them, Ramakrishna said, he escorted them firmly from the monastery to ensure that they did not touch the water, to pollute it by their casted touch. The Anthropocene is blind to the way Kempama works. It's blind to the way Ramakrishna thinks. And it's blind to the way we modify and manage landscapes through ritual and other practices at great social cost. Sensorial Dalit expression, the Dalit scholar Suraj Yengade writes, is an experience of the revelation of the personal and the, and the political. I think we should add the ecological to it as well. Setting indigenous practice as 
dialectic to Sanskritic textual understandings is one of the sort of really important things I'm trying to do in my ethnography. To argue that Dalit well-digging castes have been lost in modern India, their, their loss is an endemic violence that we commit to future communities. It is linked to the fundamentalist and masculinist Hindutva narratives that are nationalist but never local. It would seem that the infrastructure of impotence and corruption, the toxic kidnapping of Hinduism by Hindutva apparatchiks, can only be challenged by a feminine, indigenous, ecological imaginary located in repair as an act of love that Kempamat spoke to me about. Kempama's knowledge, her wisdom in enacting this poetics of repair is a vital ethical dharmic task. In thinking about our relationship to Prithvi and the earth, which the otherwise makes manifest and central. Personal relationships in love and devotion is action, she said. This, I believe, is the concrete lever of change. So in conclusion, Gauri's eulogy for Belandur invites us to follow Kempama, to ask what dirty yet pure water is seen as being and doing in contemporary Hinduism. How can Hindus, in the creative complexity of how they value, define, express, and practice their dharma, approach the age of climate crisis? Do they merely say, well, this is Kali Yuga, which is a rationalization of untenable, unthinkable behavior? As life on the planet unravels, in ways seen and unseen, we unravel the natural consequences that these larger narratives of our behavior inflict on us. Kempamas then sang a song as I left. All the lakes have dried up, frogs have conceived, but you have not come, O Ganga. Ponds have gone dry, crickets have conceived, why have you not come, why not? Tikala women like Gauri, and the uh, Bhovi women like Kempama offer us a model of collective ethics that attaches moral agency to an act of repair. It opens up a new kind of understanding of our existence. We have to understand places as persons. We have to understand the act of repair as natural. And then we can see nature itself as an anchor for social justice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tulsi. That was really um, uh, such a new way for us to think about the limitations of the Anthropocene and the way that we have managed to recenter ourselves even in critiquing human um, intervention in the environment. So thank you so much. Um, we, and uh, we also have an online audience today. Should I sit down or should I answer questions? No, question? don't sit down. OK. I will, sit down. You, will you answer questions yes, for us? I'm happy yes. To I'm going to move to the back of the room okay. where our online audience can ask questions. I okay. apologize for having failed to greet our online audience at the beginning, but we're very happy that you're, you are participating remotely. Um, we, we, so we, can't, we do have some uh, time. We have about 
20 or 30 minutes for discussion of this really stimulating conversation. I, I am so grateful to be introduced to these places as persons. You're and I really feel that you did introduce us as my home. Yes, thank you for taking us there and for inviting us into this very difficult. Difficult. It's difficult home. to have a conversation. It makes you very, uh, to sit in dread and discomfort is really hard. But, um, but then Kampama offers us a way out, it seems. And I have to think more about that way out and how to articulate it better. She articulates it beautifully. But, yeah. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask if there are questions um, from people who are present. Careful. Yes, there are. Um, can you introduce yourself, please, if you don't mind? Yes. Uh, I'm going to take this question first, and then we'll take the gentleman. Thank you. I'm just curious, having studied international development before and having read a little bit about the caste system in my bachelor's program, how this might affect other women in the community, perhaps, or in the area that are not from the Dalit caste. Did you find that other women were affected as well? Well, let me um, address that both granularly and in a larger perspective. Gauri is not Dalit. She's Tigla. So she's within the caste system, and she's clearly affected. What has happened? Um, let me preface this by saying I trained as an architect and worked as a development consultant for many years. Uh, I think development, um, you know, it's a brilliantly positive word for basically uh, in India, at least, uh, a continued extraction by the 1%. Uh, 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 and as we have found to our cost, globally, land developers tend to be amongst the most um, blissfully uh, dismissive of legal constructions. Um, and they are hand in glove with politicians for this extraction. But my own considerations of development aside, let me answer your question. Um, what has happened to a large number of rural migrants is, with the development of these cities as, as center points in India, uh, they have in-migrated. As I said, 8,000 people migrated into Bangalore. And what kind of jobs do they get? They're largely um, the ones who are schooled in English language or something, might get service jobs. The women work in beauty parlors, or they might work in small shops. Rural um, uh, labor that is not sort of cosmopolitan or doesn't have those skills, at least early, get conscripted into construction labor. That is the most difficult and hard labor one can do. And so these cities grow at a phenomenal pace. Many of these apartments are empty. They're just bank accounts into which you know people buy them in the hope that they increase in value. So I see a real downside to development. On the other hand, of course, 
If one goes to the Government of India website, or one goes to many NGOs, they see development is actually very useful. It has lifted many people out of poverty. Um, uh, and that's true to a large extent. That is true. Uh, the kind of uh, sort of as India joined the neoliberal economy in the late 1980s and 1990s, the plethora of goods and services that are available in these cities are unmatched all over the world, certainly because there's human labor available. Our, um, our uh, population stands at 1.4 billion growing every day. Um, it's, a, it's a culture that values children. And therefore, this population increases. And um, a large proportion of this population is poor and marginalized. So ripe for the kind of politics and extraction that development presages. Yeah, my name is James, and I work with technology at uh, FAS. And I'm, I wonder what your view is on the role of technology in help solving the ecological crisis. Yeah, thank you for that, James. It's a very important question. Let me say I'm not anti-science. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not anti-technology. Um, I. Um, I couldn't give this talk without technology. I couldn't do my field work without technology. I'm, but I see myself less pro-technology and caught in the webs of it, as we all are. And I think it, I think unless we set, a tool is only as good as what you use it for, to me. And unless we set the agenda of what we are using this technology for, it becomes, I, I mean, look at the way we use social media. It's not the most enlightened way. Um, and so I think that the, the, the goal setting has to come from a passion. And then, sure, the technocratic solutions will all follow. The solar panels, the solar batteries, the way we manage water, that will all follow. But we have to undo our attachment to technology. I mean, in the 70s, if any of you were around, I remember as a child, people talk about dams as the future in China and India. They built these huge dams, ruined the ecology because we didn't know any better. What did the indigenous people do at that time? They did the Chipko movement. They hugged the trees. Chipko means to adhere. The women hugged the trees that were being cut down for these dams, saying that these trees are our livelihood. They were ignored. Development, technocracy was the mantra. That proved to be fatal, proved to be really damaging. Um, so I think, um, yeah, in retrospect, we are very good, but not very good about being circumspect, and not very good about prospect, but very good in retrospect. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take a question from our online audience, um, from Preeta Banerjee, who asks, can you re-articulate the, quote, way out as you see it currently? Uh, Rita, I, um, that's what I'm trying to figure out, actually. That is what this year is for. I'm trying to think about how this 
poetics of repair can produce a way out. And it's kind of hard because it relies on um, a wisdom that is rapidly being lost, and therefore it has to be archived, curated, taught to future generations, it has to be valued. So there's a real problem in that enactment. Um, but I see that as a counterpoint or a counter image, the otherwise, to the sort of understood, naturalized rhetorics and politics of development. Um, it's not at a scale that can succeed by any means. Um, but I, I have an intuitive sense that that is, at some level, the care and repair is the answer. And I just noticed how, as a society, middle class societies all over the world have lost the art of repair. Try repairing an iron. It is impossible. They'll tell you it's more expensive to repair it, throw it out and get a new one. Uh, when did we start doing that? That shows a lack of care. And it shows that rubbish is fine, right? Rubbish that we take in and consume and rubbish that we throw out. It seems that we are uncaring of, of what we leave behind. That strikes me as sort of at the root of the problem, that reparation in the political sense and repair are less valued. That strikes me as a moral thrust. But I'm babbling on because I'm unclear of how to answer that question. And if anyone has solutions, I would love to hear. Because I think solutions, soluble water, it's a brilliant sort of metaphorical place for me to land. But thank you, Rita, for the question. Brilliant question. Um, first of all, thank you so much. I, this, this presentation hit me really personally. i am just spent the last 21 years in Los Angeles. I'm from Southern Oregon, where Los Angeles steals water from. Our lakes are, you know, I've watched them get lower every year. The f my personal family home burned down in fires in Oregon, which is in part because the city I was living in was draining the forests that I grew up in. So, and I, um, came to environmental activism, putting myself in front of police on the streets as a result of practices of um, building relationships with bodies of water as people. So I was really excited to hear. And one of the projects I produced in that work was um, a booth called a listen-in to have people be heard in their climate grief. So for weeks I sat particularly listening to teenage girls and their grief. Um, and it was <laughs> very intense, and it ultimately led to needing to sort of step away, like being consumed by that grief. So I'm wondering, like when I hear the story of the woman watching the lake burn, there's deep grief in that, but there's also then something beyond. So I'm wondering, what do you see in these people in how they're bringing in grief and then trans, like what's the, is grief part of, how do you see grief? Like when does grief stop? What us from imagining what's next, and when is grief generative? That's an interesting question. Um, maybe, maybe you don't know, but I'm wondering. If I don't know when grief stops. I think it's constant, um, but the need to survive makes us set it aside and go on. But I think that. Um, 
I think grief is enormously generative. And let me not say, a lot of NGOs, et cetera, in India are working with this problem. They're doing phenomenal jobs. Um, but many of them are seeking technocratic solutions. How do we revitalize waters, et cetera? Many software engineers actually have given up their jobs to clean up the lakes because they recognize the problem that it caused, that, that is endemic to Bangalore now. And that's brilliant work. Like one guy has cleaned up like two or three lakes single-handedly, practically. Um, and so I think that the mobilization, right? The grief needs to lead to mobilization. That all of us see the problem at hand. Um, that's hard. Uh, that all of us recognize the problem because, I mean, I know I'm lazy, and I'm, uh, and I have my own concerns, and they're very limited, and. Yeah, I, I don't know when grief ends. I think that we just tend to, to ignore it to sort of propel ourselves forward. You're getting some very tough questions. I am. I am. Really, I, I, um, I, I want to just give you a chance to take a breath because the, to answer some of these questions is a huge burden that we're, we're placing on you. Um, um, let me take a question over here from another research assistant. Um, so I'm going to ask this, and then I have to run to go prep my teaching. But um, after you answer, of course. But I, I mean, this is really more. Um, it's not such a targeted question, but you know, as uh, as you were talking about this, um, my you know myself having grown up in New Orleans, so another place where you know climate apocalypse is kind of upon us. Um, just having visited Chicago, and there was a big New York Times article last year about the water problems in Chicago. So I, I sort of, I, I wanted to kind of, you know, obviously you're looking at a very specific um, um, place, right, and, and um, bringing, you know, trying to illuminate this place as a person, as you as you said. But I was also wondering about sort of the comparative aspects. Um, and I wanted to kind of push you to th to to answer about how, how this kind of fits in with a larger global story, um, as well as with its, you know, contingent local circumstances. Right. Um, that's a brilliant question, Jordan. Thank you for that. And thank you for pushing me, because that is what I want to sort of write a piece on. Um, the local is the global. I mean, it's a microcosm. And Bangalore is my hometown, and so I feel strongly about it. But you could look at Los Angeles, where I've worked, and uh, you see, you look at the Colorado River. You look at farmers in Arizona. You look at London. Did you see the brown lawns of London this summer? I mean, it was unimaginable 10 years ago. Uh, London, that gets so much rain, um, is on the edge of having a day zero of its own. Look at South Africa. Um, look at Beijing. Um, we are all on the edge of this. And for if you don't drink water for about three hours, you know how you feel. You know how your skin feels, you know how your hair feels, you know how irritable you get. Um, so imagine a world where water is gone. And water is the first thing we look for when we look for life, yeah? We send these space missions and all that, and the first thing they say is, there's water. There might be the capacity for life. 
And yet we seem unable or unwilling to look at this square in the face. It is an existential crisis for all beings, us most importantly. And yet we drink our plastic bottled water, we think it is an unending resource. This strikes me as really um, enormously short-sighted. And yet in every major world religion, I was thinking about it comparatively in world religion, every major world religion has some form of water ritual from birth to death. We understand it as womb to tomb, womb particularly. And so I wonder what modernity has done in that breakage, that snipping, has made us as humans sort of, and I'm talking about all religions now, we seem really unwilling to contend with that the evil that we wreak upon the world. Um, and I think that it is not explained to in the right passionate way to developers and, and the laws are not enacted. They're unable to be enacted for various monetary reasons. Um, and so we hit a dead wall. So, we understand it to be our existence. We understand it to be ritually significant. We understand it to be important. And yet, yet, uh, we are unwilling to, to husband that resource. Um, and yet, people have children every day. So there is a sense of hope. Huh? It's not like we're saying, well, you know, the, this world is shut, we're all, you know, we're gonna go anyway. We, we don't do that sort of thing. We have a sense of hope. So I'm still struggling with, uh, with my own thinking and, and a group. We need, we need a global conversation, and yet, of course, we're not having it. The only way I can afford is a very local, small thing. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Hello, thank you so much. Um, I think I remember <laughs> attending a talk of yours during COVID, and so it's really amazing to see the research progress, but I'm Blaine from the Graduate School of Design. Um, so I'm just trying to, um, amongst all the coffees that I've had today, trying to sort of locate a question in this idea of poetics of care and thinking about how environmental law might come in to sort of enact this, which I think dovetails um, onto the previous question of the comparative, right? Like, um, so I was thinking about the 2017 um resolution on the, um, you know, recognizing the Ganga as, as, a, as a personhood. And then, um, so briefly during yeah, that year when I saw your talk, I, I looked at the kind of genealogy of, um, yes. of law and reference um, and precedents that, that came before that. And there's a, you know, a river back for where I'm from in New Zealand, Aotearoa, um, called the Wanganui, which yes, has, a, yes. um, uh, has been recognized with environmental personhood and has a council that administers care. So. Um, I know, sorry, it's a really long-winded question, but I know Dilip Dukuna and Arundaha has done um, work. Have, have written about the kind of challenges he, he, he talks about environmental personhood. I, I shouldn't quote because this was a talk, but um, as being quite problematic in the, yes. in, the, in the context of India and in the context of 
Hindutva and Hinduism and so maybe you could speak a little bit to the challenges of protecting a river as an environmental person and if we're recognizing places as people um, but maybe I'll I don't know why I'm shaking that I think I just get nervous when I ask questions <laughs> thank you thank you don't be nervous it's a brilliant question and Professor Bagaria would be better um, placed as an anthropologist of law um, but yes I went to New Zealand primarily to see the Kia parrots, but also for a conference, I think, on religion, um, which was secondary. But, um, and I think New Zealand has, because it's small, it's done a phenomenal job of understanding the future and, it's, um, and, and sort of protecting natural resources. But in a country as large and as diverse as India, enacting laws is not good enough. A law is only as good as the teeth it has. So you can't, and the Ganges is a special circumstance. It's a river, it's sacred. But you can't say a river is a sacred person. Simultaneously with uh, several hundred year old rituals whereby stuff is thrown into the river, including dead bodies, and alongside that have modern industrial effluence into the river and not fine or, or stop um, at least the industrial influence. And you can't change the sort of ritual construction. It's very difficult to change cultural and ritual constructions of rivers. So we have a sort of central problem in India in that the government enacts very sort of progressive policy, but fails to identify where the policy will fail and doesn't sell the policy to people. There's no passion around that. Eh, Ganga is a sacred river. It's but how people use the river doesn't, doesn't fall in line with the law. So how do you enact law that works is more the point, not just enacting law. Um, and India has very progressive laws. It has progressive laws on LGBTQ. It has progressive laws on caste. It has progressive laws on ecology. Um, Hindutva is a problem, but I see it also as a cultural problem of how Indians think about resources and rationalize this sort of disintegration, this ecological disintegration through religious understandings of Kali Yuga. Yeah? Um, I think that's part of the problem. At least I'm speculating here, I hope intelligently. Um, I'm going to take a question online from um, a past research associate who's with us online today, Vijaya Nagarajan, and it's great to have you here, Vijaya. Um, she asks, what does the language of Canada have in terms of understanding the way that common resources are imagined? I think this is part of our solution. Yes, says. I agree with Vijaya. And I suspect from her last name, she is from South India or has some connections to South India. And um, I think that's one of the parts I held back because Harini Nagendra um, and her, who's a rather famous sociologist of ecology in the city has written about uh, the trashing of the lakes and uh, sort of resurrection of them. And I think the Kannada imaginary deals with um, sort of the landscape it, it has four sort of ways of thinking about the landscape. They talk about 
ಕಲ್ಲು ಕೆರೆ ಬಟ್ಟೆ ಕಾಡು ಕಲ್ಲು ಇಸ್ ಸ್ಟೋನ್ ಕೆರೆ ಇಸ್ ಲೇಕ್ ಬೆಟ್ಟ ಇಸ್ ಮೌಂಟನ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಕಾಡು ಇಸ್ ಕಾಪ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಟ್ರೀಸ್ ಫಾರೆಸ್ಟ್ ಸೊ ದರ್ ಈಸ್ ಅನ್ ಅಂಡರ್ಸ್ಟ್ಯಾಂಡಿಂಗ್ ದಟ್ ದೀಸ್ ಫಾರ್ಮ್ ದಿ ಕಾಲಜಿ ಆಫ್ ದ ಡೆಕನ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದೇ ಆರ್ ವೇಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಥಿಂಕಿಂಗ್ ಅಬೌಟ್ ದ ಲ್ಯಾಂಗ್ವೇಜ್ ಯೂಸಸ್ ಸೊಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಪೊಯಟಿಕ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ರಿಪೇರ್ ವೆರಿ ಫ್ರೀಕ್ವೆಂಟ್ಲಿ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಸೊ ಐ ಥಿಂಕ್ ದೇರ್ ಈಸ್ ಅನ್ ಇಮ್ಯಾಜಿನೇಷನ್ ದೇರ್ ಆಫ್ ರಿಪೇರ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದಾಟ್ಸ್ ವಟ್ ಐ ವಾಂಟ್ ಟು ಲುಕ್ ಆಟ್ಸ್ um to think about it deep in my field notes i have to extract it but thank you vijaya that's a really important point a thoughtful way to think about moving forward thank you just going to make a note hi um my name is denise i i wonder if you've already touched on the answer to this um with the gentleman from new zealand i was thinking about how much I wonder what you think about how much religion actually does play in the stopping of the feeling for the need to make changes of how the rivers are treated for instance Kali Yuga meaning you know basically the inevitability of the end of the world and you know the customs of burning the bodies in the Ganges river and such so I just um wanted to touch on that a little bit yeah yeah um that's what the book is about it's about the hindu religious imaginary and how it constructs the rationalization of the apocalypse or or uh, it creates a timeline for the apocalypse and it creates the understanding that the apocalypse is inevitable um it might come in different forms but it is a sort of reduction of ethics it's understood as a sort of erosion of ethics and so we reach this point where we have no solutions uh and then what anthropology can teach us the anthropology of wisdom can teach us is there is always a sense of repair so while the great textual sort of treatises the sanskritized treatises tell us well this is the end the end is coming the end is nigh on the other hand you get people like kempama going well i care for these waters they are my children i birthed them what do you do with that in the face of this clearly this is talking to that um so there's a sense also that she's repairing the text she's adding at least addendum to the text and um i shouldn't make this generalization but what the hell i'm going to make it anyway um hinduism has always been a sort of a sort of <coughs> uh confection of the unification of colonial powers with um with uh, upper caste translators it is that is hinduism and so when kempama speaks back to the text she's doing something really important she's sort of interdigitizing the text she's providing marginalia to the sanskritic so the the inevitability the temporal inevitability of decay she goes no but wait and i think the but wait is really important. Uh and I want us to pay attention to that. As a scholars of religion we have paid a lot of attention to the Sanskrit text what the Rigveda says who said it how it was translated who translated it the number of translations of these mythic texts and the ethics that are involved in them. And slowly of course we are beginning to pay attention to dalit voices and the ethics of them. of indigenous understanding 
But I think when she says, I care for these waters, I birth them, she's saying something that responds to the, to the easy sort of use of Kali Yuga by middle class, upper caste Hindus. Um, and it's not sort of a simplistic, feminist, resilience, response, counter-narrative. No, it's none of those things. It's about being present in that place and caring for the act of repair. Um, so it can't be easily sort of corralled into a feminist narrative of resilience. I don't want to go that route. That's too easy survivability and res resilience. We have that. The Eurocentric imagination has given that answer to us. This, I suspect, is something else, located in the Kannada imagination that Vichya is asking about. And I want to extract that. I think there are threads there that are counterintuitive and very useful. Hi, I'm uh, Greg from the Extension School. And I live in Cleveland, which is like 10 miles from the Great Lakes or right on the Great Lakes. And I was wondering, like, how do we convince others that it's such a huge problem when I, like, look out and see, like, water, like, onto the horizon? Yeah. That is true. Um, I think. I think I'm going to um, tread on many toes at this moment. <laughs> Let me find a diplomatic way of trying to say what I want to say. I think America has a particular problem with this because it is such a wealthy country. I'm not talking about money. I went to Niagara Falls and nearly fell over. The amount of water wealth, the amount of mountain wealth, the amount of land wealth, from sea to shining sea, this country owns. I have seen Americans open their refrigerator and stare in for five minutes while they decide what to take out. That indicated to me tremendous wealth, the wealth to generate the electricity. Right? That is water wealth. And I think you're right. I think Americans have a problem with this reality because when they look out, they see natural wealth. And it is, but they must understand it has pr been protected so that one can look out and see those pine forests by previous generations. And we have failed on the job of protecting it for future generations. So your grandchildren, Brad, may not see those pristine waters. And that is what you have to understand. right? Your great-grandchildren will definitely not. I think the kinds of bird migrations we see today are one-tenth of what they were 100 years ago. That should tell us something. We, our children, our grandchildren will definitely not look in the sky and see birds. I, I, it's too polluted for birds to fly. In Delhi, sometimes the birds fall out of the sky because it is so polluted. That is what we have created. And when I think of a sky without birds, to me, that induces a sense of dread. I mean, just. Think of those, even if you've stepped out and you've heard birdsong, we take it for granted. Those damn birds, they shit on our cars, we say, <laughs> right? And we see flocks of them when we go to any natural place. We take them for granted, chickens, uh, swallows in the sky, 
crackles, crackles. Imagine a world, world where that just gone. And we know, we've, we've pushed so many species into extinction. We've done it. I don't see us recognizing or acknowledging that our children will not have this. It's too frightening and too dreadful and too hopeless to imagine, but yet it's very real. So we have a problem with reality all told, but in this country particularly so because it is so naturally wealthy and it has been protected, luckily, up to this point. I am the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but, but, yes. This is gonna be our last question. Yes, before I ask my question, I want to tell you that I have, I'm continuing to learn deep lessons from the Srinivas family. Your father was a great teacher, and I've learned a great deal from you. Thank you. Oh, that's kind. My, qu my question or comment, um, you see, uh, we speak in modernity, we speak of natural resources. Mm -hmm. Natural resources mm -hmm. are not persons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They are not persons with whom we reciprocate, with whom we speak, with yeah, whom we exchange. Mm. And, and the, the term uh, natural resource uh, seems so uh, devoid of anything ideological, but it's profound. Mm -hmm. It carries, it's a huge weight that it carries. Mm. The word natural means it's not us. It's an anthropos centric statement. Yes. And resource makes it doubly anthropocentric. It's there for us, the humans. Yes. 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 Uh, and that's something uh, that is at the core of modernity. Yes. Uh, modernity was built on making the cosmos, or what we call nature in quotation mark, yes. a mechanism, an object. There is a, a profound problem. Beautifully put. Um, I think you've led me to believe that my quarrel needs to go to Weber. This Protestant ethic is the root of modernity. It is the root of understanding our dominion rather than our custodianship, right? We are co-creators is never understood. It is our dominion, and that is a very old religious understanding, very Eurocentric religious understanding of the world, that our dominion is there for our extraction and use, to build a better world. What is better is, of course, now questionable in retrospect. And I think that is dead right. And I was reading Levinas, and then I was reading, um, uh, oh, lost the name. Um, who's the anthropologist? Uh, Julian Pitrivers, uh, who hasn't written much, but he wrote a beautiful piece on hospitality and grace. And I think that's where I need to go. I need to go to the notion of grace and what grace actually is uh, as a blessing as well as 
custodianship. That grace involves a sense that one takes care versus one has dominion over. Uh, I think also it's a sort of irrigary kind of Sisu's understanding of care and love. Uh, so there's that. But it's rooted in a sort of old ritual understanding, Hindu ritual understanding of how to situate a human. Um, because um, if you do any kind of worship, any kind of puja in a temple, they situate you in space and time. They say, Bharata Khande, Bharata Varshe, Jambodvipe, and then they recite your lineage descent, right? Bharata Khande in the forests of Bharata. Um, Bharata Varshe in, in, in the land of Bharata. Jambodvipe to the north of Ceylon. They're locating you in this sacred geography. So there is a long history of locating a human in relation to the geography and the natural world, which we just recited and we forget. And all the gods, the planets of the universe, are the nine Navagrahas, right? The sun, Ravi, I mean, everyone who does yoga worships him every day. We, we do it. Somehow we've lost that part of our brain that understands that that is connected not just to our well-being, but to our very existence. That is what troubles me. Right? It's a moral failure on our part. Um, but I will end with that. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. I just want to um, end with a few words of appreciation for Tulasi for her care for us and your, your thoughtfulness and diplomacy in helping us navigate what are very difficult, difficult. Uh, I was going to say waters, but that's not the right <laughs> word, that we have ahead of us as intellectuals with the responsibility to um, confront these very difficult mm. issues. So yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anne. You're so kind. You're so kind. Sponsor, Women's Studies in Religion Program. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.